tonight on Farage. Smart meters, we're all to have them in our homes. It's going to lead to surge pricing. Do you trust smart meters? Do you think they're for our benefit or for commercial companies' benefit? We'll look at the ending a month early of all COVID restrictions. Is it a victory for common sense and freedom or somewhat premature? And joining me on Talking Pints, a 2019 Red Waller Tory MP, Matt Vickers, and also somebody already has become a serial rebel. Good evening. There's been a huge push over the last few years to get every house to have a smart meter, an electricity smart meter. And the firms have been very successful in pushing the idea. Around about 18 million houses now have one. Now, I haven't got a smart meter, and yet my energy provider writes to me at least once a quarter uh, telling me I need to go for a smart meter. They've now got a new tactic telling me that the old meter could be dangerous. It could even be a fire hazard, but I keep throwing my letters in the bin. Why? Well, I'm not sure I quite trust these things. And it's taken a long time for this to come out. But there is now a full admission that smart meters mean that twice every hour, energy companies can monitor exactly the amount of electricity that you use and put into place something that is called surge pricing. And even this week, we've seen one energy company trying to incentivize people not to use electricity at peak times. Now, I think one of the reasons for this is because of the government's completely insane net zero strategy, the drive towards electric cars and the realization we're just not going to have enough electricity. So I struggle to believe that smart meters are in the interest of the consumer. I think they're much more in the interest of the commercial companies that want us to have them. And I suspect, once you've got a smart meter, in extremists, they could literally switch off your power. I don't trust them. Now, perhaps I've got this wrong. But I'm not sure that I have. Well, maybe someone that can convince me that I am wrong is Dale Vince, who is the founder of Ecotricity, Britain's so-called greenest energy supplier. And Dale, welcome to GB News this evening. Yeah, thank you, Nigel. <clears throat> Pleasure to be here. Now, the push for us to get smart meters, the bombardment that I'm under, and it includes phone calls as well. Um, they want me to have a smart meter. I'm a consumer. It will lead to surge pricing, and everybody accepts that and admits that. Um, is this really in my benefit to have a smart meter? Well, there's a lot to say, actually, about this. Firstly, this is a government-mandated program. So when your energy company is chasing you, it's because the government obliges them to fit smart meters. And you don't have to have one. So no. you're quite within your rights to refuse one. But energy companies must do their very best to fit everybody with a smart meter, electricity and gas, by the way, not just electricity. And is it in your interest? <clears throat> I think it actually is, because at the moment, um, your bills will be estimated unless you read the meter yourself and not everybody wants to do that or remembers to do that or does it in time. Smart meters will do away with estimated bills in the same way that we never get an estimated bill for a phone. Um, so that's a good thing. Surge pricing is a slightly emotive term. Really, it's about uh, time of use. And there are some tariffs out there already that, that differentiate between the time of the day that you use power. If you look at our national grid, it has been uh, built to deal with the most amazing peaks of consumption and troughs. And as a result, it's only 50% being used. And that's a very 
expensive and inefficient way to run a national grid. If we can uh, have time of use charging or surge pricing, as you call it, then we can we can uh, we can avoid the peaks. People can avoid the peaks, avoid the peak pricing, um, and your energy bill can simply be cheaper. Yeah, but if you get home from work at six forty-five, five nights a week, it's quite difficult to avoid those periods. I would suggest, um, but 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 more broadly, Dale, more broadly. You know, this is a government that wants us to have electric cars. Uh, Our reliance on electricity uh, becomes greater with every year that goes by with digitization, computerization, all the rest of it. We simply haven't got the means, have we, of producing enough electricity and certainly not through renewables alone uh, to cope with what we're facing in just a few short years to come. That's very interesting. topic. If you look at uh, electric cars, if everybody had one right now, 30 million cars in Britain driving a quarter of a billion miles a year, that's what we do in fossil powered cars, we'll need a 10% increase in electricity delivered through the grid. Now, that is not very much. That's probably five years of the normal growth that you've described, where we keep getting more and more gadgets and stuff like that. So it's completely doable from a national grid point of view. If you look at the amount of renewable energy available to us as a country from the wind, the sun, uh, not to mention tide and waves, which we've not harnessed yet, we have enough to power the country 20 times over just from the wind and the sun. So it's actually very doable. But how should consumers feel, Dale, when up to 25% of their electricity bills to date have been in green subsidies? All of this put upon consumers without any free, fair, open debate, not being made an issue at general elections. And, and I just wonder, you know, this is an industry, isn't it? Renewables is an industry that's been kept awash with taxpayers' money without anybody telling them. Got it. So two questions there. How should people feel outraged? Because it should Mm. never have happened. These are stealth taxes, nine billion pounds a year added to our energy bills. It shouldn't happen. Second question, is renewable energy awash with cash from this? No, absolutely not. We spend more money subsidizing fossil fuels now, vastly more than we subsidize renewable energy. Um, What we do in energy is not on our our electricity bill is a fact. Listen, we we put two and a half billion a year into farming to make food cheaper, but we don't add the cost of that to food bills. So what the government have done with energy is unique. They've dumped this cost of social and environment programs. It's not just the environment onto energy bills and they should take them away. It's 300 pounds every year for every household. Dale, one day I want you to come back uh, and come to the studio and let's go through wind energy. Let's go through solar energy and and the improvements that are being made and where we might go in the future with it. But just finally for tonight, there's a story broken overnight, a science story, that some scientists think we're closer to nuclear fusion. Now, I know that this has always been the holy grail. If we can get to nuclear fusion, uh, we can produce vast amounts of energy and perhaps do it in very small, modern nuclear power stations. Is this potentially an exciting development? It sounds amazing. And what they did was to run this nuclear fusion reactor for five seconds. And it was double what they'd ever achieved before 25 years ago. So it took 25 years to get from two and a half seconds to five seconds. I tell you that because I think the potential, you've got to take this into account. Yeah, maybe it can work, but how long is it going to take? We don't have that amount of time to fight the climate crisis.
Yeah, well, to fight the climate crisis or indeed the energy uh, shortage or crisis or lack of uh, independence that we have in Britain. Dale, listen, it's great to talk to you. There's so much more to talk about. This whole question of energy, of net zero, is going to be one of the biggest issues in society over the next few years. I look forward to us debating this again in much more depth. Thank you for joining me this evening. And please give me your views on all of that. Do you trust smart meters? Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, something that pleases me is Boris Johnson telling us that the final restrictions, and in particular self-isolation if you've been into contact with somebody who's got COVID, originally the 24th of March was the day on which all these restrictions we're going to end. We're now told it could be the end of February. It could be a month earlier that literally all restrictions around COVID-19 end. And we treat it uh, as we treat flu and we use our common sense. Now, I personally think this is quite a big victory for common sense, quite a big victory for personal freedom, choice and, and allowing us as adults to make the right decisions. But I suspect there are some in the medical community who may well think this is premature. We, after all, are doing this pretty much ahead of any other Western country. Well, joining me to debate whether this is the right thing to do right now is Dr. Barrett Pankania, Senior Clinical Lecturer at the University of Exeter's Medical School. Welcome back to the programme, Barrett. Thank you. Good evening, Nigel. So I think this is wonderful, it's fantastic, and I, and I can tell you that in London today, you wouldn't even know there's been a pandemic. Everything's back to normal, uh, the trains are packed, the bars are busy, no one's wearing a face mask, uh, and there's a sense of normality returning. I mean, that of itself, of course, is a great thing, but you tell me, is all of this a bit premature? I would love to know what the advice to our Prime Minister was from SAGE and our Chief Medical Officer. We don't know that. But if I had to sort of think empirically, not knowing what the advice given to the Prime Minister was, this is what I would say. Yes, we need to get back to normality. It is good to see that the vaccines have uncoupled infection with serious illness. That is definitely a win, and we know that. Vaccines prevent you from getting serious illness. Therefore, we can make the next steps forward, which are remove and reduce restrictions. What I would say is in sensitive places, sensitive clinical places, we ought to maintain our protection, our precautionary measures, and also support people. Support people if they are unwell to stay at home and not infect others. And finally, uh, yes. Be prepared to reverse these measures if it starts to go in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think, look, you know, to say to people, if they're really feeling unwell and they've tested positive for COVID, rather than coming into a crowded office, they should stay at home. I mean, that's what I call the application of just plain common sense. Frankly, actually, more than common sense, good manners, I think, and respect for other people. And I get that completely. Um, but we kind, of don't, we kind of don't need the state to tell us that, at least I would hope we don't. But when you talk about protected environments, where perhaps we do need uh, to use a sort of different uh, regime, I mean, presumably you're talking, what, hospitals, care homes, those sort of environments? 
In, indeed, indeed, indeed. Clinical settings where you may meet a very vulnerable people, uh, immune-suppressed people, elderly, frail people. And over there, I still feel we ought to be precautionary and take all precautionary measures. It's only common sense that okay. in those places we continue to do what we've always done. Yeah, look, do you know what? That actually makes perfect sense to me. So, for example, if I'm going into a care home to visit an elderly relative it would make sense for me to have a test before I go and do that. Absolutely. Not only that, do the test properly. I deal with infection outbreak meetings every day. And one of the themes I always use with all the care workers is how well are you doing your tests on a daily basis? And sometimes I have to correct them with their techniques. So, yes, do the test, do it properly. And that gives you a great deal of confidence that you are entering that home infection free. All right, I can live with that. I think there's a, a very broad outbreak of agreement between both of us on this one, and thank you very much indeed for joining me. And, yeah, it's going to be about common sense rather than government restrictions, rather than the big state knows best. Now, Partygate, you thought it had gone away. You were getting bored with it, weren't you? Well, I'm afraid Partygate is not going away. Um, it just isn't going to happen. And we saw a photograph that came out, uh, was published pretty much at the beginning of Prime Minister's Questions by the Daily Mirror earlier on today. And that is Christmas, the Christmas when we were all made to stay at home and not party. And there's a chappie wearing tinsel and there's a bottle of quite a well-known champagne brand. And there's an online quiz going on. Now, you know, whether, whether that is... Um, or is not a Christmas party, you must decide. Uh, indeed, a question was asked about it in the House of Commons by Fabian Hamilton, MP, um, and, and, and I think the Prime Minister was a little bit taken aback by it. And in the last few minutes, uh, the Metropolitan Police have released a statement to say that they will be sending formal questionnaires out to more than 50 people involved in that Partygate event in Downing Street. The document will ask for an account, an explanation of the recipient's participation in the event must be replied to within seven days. Let's just see you know, how this came out when asked by Fabian Hamilton, Labour MP, earlier on today. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, at the height of the lockdown restrictions in 2020, my constituent, who's worked for the NHS for over 30 years, was diagnosed with a tumour on her spine. Whilst in hospital, undergoing painful surgery, her family obeyed the rules and didn't visit her. Mr Speaker, in the last few minutes, a photo has emerged of the Prime Minister in Downing Street on the 15th of December 2020, surrounded by alcohol, food and people wearing tinsel. It looks a lot like one of the Christmas parties he told us never happened. So for the sake of my constituent and the sacrifices she made, will the Prime Minister be referring this party to the police, as it's not one of the ones already being investigated. Prime Minister. Uh, he's, I'm afraid, uh, first, of all, uh, first of all, I'm very sorry about his uh, constituent and uh, for the difficulties that she's, uh, she's been through. Uh, and I understand, I understand uh, very much her feelings, Mr Speaker. Uh, but in what he has just said, I'm afraid he is completely in error. Well, we'll see whether it is completely an error. We'll see what the Grey report says when it finally comes out. We'll see what the Metropolitan Police do when it all comes out. Dominic Cummings threatening today that there are a load more 
pictures to come. So even if you are bored with Partygate, I promise you it isn't going away. Now, what on earth has gone wrong with football? Premier League player after Premier League player in trouble. Kurt Zuma, the latest, uh, filmed kicking a cat. The RSPCA are involved. Uh, fan violence on the increase. What is going wrong with football? In a moment, we'll have ex-international Tony Cossey on, and I'll ask him that very question. Well, I've asked you, do you trust smart meters? This move mandated by the government. I certainly have my suspicions. Alan says, wouldn't have one if you paid me. They can cut you off when they please. And that's been one of the reasons I don't want to have one, let alone surge pricing. Mark says, no, I've gone as far as to instruct my energy company not to ask me if I want one. Perhaps I'd better do that. Paso says, no, I will not have one. Too many say that they don't give the correct readings. I can't comment on that. Another viewer says, hell no, it was pretty clear from the beginning that there was an agenda to exercise remote control over our power consumption. Well, that's exactly what they are able to do. Pam says, no, our electricity supplier has stopped asking me now. Well, there we are. I must write to mine, I think, a little bit more clearly. Now, football. Our big national sport. Gosh, we even reached a final of something last year in the Euros, didn't we? And the Premier League. The Premier League, which actually symbolically has become one of our biggest exports in the world. It's amazing. Even in America, which I never thought would take to soccer, as they prefer to call it. You know, when there's a big game on, a Premier League game on, the bars in New York are overflowing. But it's had its problems. And the latest one is Kurt Zuma, a West Ham player who was seen uh, seriously abusing a pet cat at home. We can show you some of that footage, although we're actually not going to show you all of it uh, because we think some of it is a bit distasteful. But basically, basically kicking a cat um, around the kitchen and the RSPCA have intervened. But it's not the only one. Mason Greenwood of Manchester United, a forward player, um, and he has been released on bail after being questioned over an alleged rape and assault of a young woman. Another Premier League player, Anonymous, who, uh, you know, has played football in the Premier League and in England, arrested on suspicion of alleged child sex offences going back to the summer of 2012, on bail pending further inquiries. Benjamin Mendy, Manchester City defender, has appeared in court to face a new allegation of attempted rape. Mendy now faces nine charges of all, seven counts of rape, including six separate potential victims. Fan violence. We thought we'd seen the back of that in many ways, but it seemed to come back last year, and this season is not going well. Last year, the UK Football Police Unit uh, released figures citing a dramatic escalation in football-related violence this season. A 47% increase in arrests and a more than 50% increase in incidents from the Skybet Championship down to non-league football clubs. So the problem here, whether it's fan violence, whether it's footballers getting into extremely serious trouble with the law, um, isn't just in the Premier League. It appears to be going through all parts of football. Now, this sport has had its ups and downs over the decade, decades. But as I say, the success of the Premier League, it's, it's standing for us as a country in the world 
really matters. And that's why it's worth debating. Well, joining me is Tony Cossa. Cossie, a former striker who played for West Ham, Everton, Leicester and England. Tony, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Welcome. Um, it's a pretty ugly picture, isn't it? What's emerged over the course of the last few weeks, you know, now four, you know, pretty senior Premier League players, all in potentially very big trouble. Uh, now this police report about the big increase in arrests and violence. Tony, what's going wrong to the game you love? Yeah, I just listened to your list of crimes that you read out there, Nigel. And uh, yeah, I mean, listen, we've got to put our hands up in the football business. I've been in football now for 40 years. And, you know, when things go wrong, as they have done with the players that you've mentioned, with the, the rise in hooliganism as well, um, I think, you know, action needs to be taken. There's no doubt about that. But, Nigel, you're old enough like me to remember the dark old days of the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, in terms of hooliganism, racism and all what was going wrong with football. And uh, there's been a lot of good work being done. And you, you, you cannot argue that football is not in a better place now than what it was 30, 40 years ago. So there's a lot of progress being made. Yeah. Having said that, you don't want to see what's been going on recently. I quite agree with you. I would have agreed with that, Tony. I would have, I would have agreed wholeheartedly with that. And the fact that Premier League um, matches are things that now people feel comfortable. You know, they have felt comfortable over the last decade or more, taking their kids to, um, you know, a feeling that it's a safe place to go and spend an enjoyable afternoon. And yet, when I came out of that tube train in Wembley on that Sunday, late Sunday afternoon last July for the Euro finals, we'd gone back 30 years and more, hadn't we? Yeah, and you can argue it's cost us a World Cup as well, Nigel, which yeah. we was going to be bidding for in 2030. We're now gone for the Euros in 2028. There was a lot of mistakes made. I didn't personally go to the game. I've seen all what went on. There was a lack of stewards, a lack of police. There was uh, individuals uh, behaving badly, drinking, taking drugs, etc. We all know what went on. And that is unacceptable, whether it's football or whether it's just in life in general. That is unacceptable. And if people make mistakes, they've got to take responsibility, whether it's an individual or whether it's as a crowd. And I come back to my point, you know, my, yeah. my, my club, I'm a big West Ham fan. And I was yeah. at the game last night and I saw what went on. And, you know, and individuals and football clubs have to take responsibility sometimes. If I was a football sceptic, Tony, I would say, ah, this is a result of a bunch of young players being paid way, way too much money and the success and the fame and the money has gone to their heads and they think they can behave differently to all the rest of us. Well, money doesn't help, Nigel. I mean, I played in the, in the, the good old days of the 80s and the 90s where we, we had a lot of fun and, yeah, we had a few drinks along the way, but we didn't get rewarded with the money we perhaps should have done. But now the players getting vast amounts of money, you know, in, in some cases 200, 300 grand a week. I, yeah. I cannot get my head around that sort of money. I don't think anyone can. But, you know, these players, it, it, a lot of it's got to be about education. You've got to educate the players. You've got to try and warn them. But, you know, I, I, I challenge anyone to be an 18, 19, 20-year-old and all of a sudden you go from earning, say, £1,000 a week to £50,000 a week, you know, not to have your head turned and not to get into bad habits, you know. And that's where the club have got to put a protective arm around them. The likes of Mason Greenwood, who you, who you mentioned, you yeah. know, those players, they need goals. And going forward, you know, all these things that you've mentioned, we've got to learn the lessons. And, you know, footballers, it doesn't matter what sort of money you get, 
you should know how to treat a cat. Let's be quite honest about this. And, you know, and I, you know, I only watched the video, I've been honest with you, about an hour ago, and I was really, really disturbed with what I see. Um, I've got a cat myself, and even if I get angry with it, when it's up on the side licking my Sunday dinner, I get angry, but I'm never going to kick the cat around the kitchen. I believe you. I, I believe you. I really do. And look, and the money... Take responsibility as an individual. You know, the money isn't going to change. I made the point in the intro that, you know, I've been in New York when Premier League games on, and literally the bars are full, they're spilling into the street. You get into, a, you get into a taxi in America now, they hear the accent, the first thing they ask you is, what team do you support? I mean, it's unbelievable the extent to which the Premier League is this amazing export for our country. But something, as you say, something's got to be done when it comes to, uh, you know, the clubs putting that protective arm around very young players, earning huge money. As for the fan problem, well, we dealt with it before. I hope you're right that we can deal with it again. Tony, thanks for coming on and joining us thanks, for this Nigel. conversation. Thank you. As I say, it really is one of our biggest exports in the world. Now, I don't know why churchyards do this, but I've seen this before. And my What the Farage moment again concerns a church. This time, it's a parochial church council burial ground in Bredhurst in Kent. And they've made an absolute blanket ruling that says no more items, no more sentimental items can be laid on graves in that churchyard in Bredhurst. And that includes teddy bears, toys, candles, balloons. It also includes artificial flowers and poppy wreaths. Uh, now, clearly, that is taking the thing uh, to ludicrous, ludicrous degrees. I think we'd all agree there are perhaps some graves um, in these communal burial grounds where perhaps the tributes and perhaps what gets left is a little bit over the top, but it's not a reason to absolutely ban all personal memorials. And I do think churches like this one in Kent go completely and utterly over the top and, frankly, get this wrong. Now, you will remember the Colston case, the statue being torn down thrown into Bristol docks and a trial that took place where four people were accused of criminal damage and the jury decided they had not committed criminal damage. Well, clearly, these people now think they are the masters of the universe. So having succeeded with that, they now want to decolonise the city, and they have put out this advert today. Don't buy Thatcher's. This is not political, by the way. Don't buy Thatcher's cider. And this is all because the fourth-generation boss of Thatcher's ciders is part of the Society of Merchant Venturers, and that is a charitable organisation dedicated to the education and care of the elderly. But that doesn't matter. Because if you go back centuries into that society of merchant venturers, you will find they help fund expeditions and that they had links to the slave trade. So anybody, any family, any individual, any company, any building that has any association with history that takes us back to periods in the past that the Colston Four don't approve of, they are telling you to ban it. Well, I have to say, I think this is completely over the top, utterly ludicrous, quite why, uh, you know, an innocent Somerset cider manufacturer should be singled out in this way. I think it's very worrying. I think it's very disturbing. 
And in a moment, I intend to have a pint of Thatcher's cider. Absolutely, I do. Back to smart meters, and I do detect there's a fair bit of scepticism out there. One viewer says, no, if you've got one, get it replaced. Well, I'm not sure once you've got a smart meter in, how on earth would you? get it replaced. And I've heard other people say they've gone on to their companies and asked for replacements and been told they can't have them. Maybe they haven't pushed hard enough. Another says, no, I don't trust anything that says it's smart. More often than not, they are anything but smart. Walter says, haven't got one and hell will freeze over before I do. Gosh, I'm getting a bit of support here. William says, certainly do not trust smart meters. Too much control for the energy companies and absolutely no protection for the consumer. Sue says, no, and I won't get one. It gives absolutely no benefit. Well, do you know, I think I'm onto something here with these smart meters. There's been very little talk about it. I just begin to sense uh, that as the whole debate about energy, about the cost of energy, and we discussed it earlier, the 25% on your electricity bill that is used to fund renewable energy and green projects. I think this whole area, this whole debate about energy is going to become a huge issue over the course of the next weeks and months. And I'm absolutely determined to campaign for us to be self-sufficient in energy and not to put green subsidies on the bills of ordinary folk. I think it's an absolute disgrace that it's got to this. And it says so much about Westminster. It says so much about the Conservative and Labour parties and how few real policy differences there have been between them over the last decade. Brexit, of course, being one thing that did, in the end, divide them. Now, talking of Westminster, I'm going to be joined in a moment by a young Conservative MP. He's the MP for Stockton South. He won it back from the Labour Party. And he's managed to establish a reputation in the space of two short years as an MP of being a bit of a serial rebel. His name's Matt Vickers. He's going to join me on Talking Pints. We're going to find out what makes Matt Vickers tick. It's my favourite time of the day. The GB News pub is indeed open. They haven't produced a Thatcher's cider for me. I'm very upset with my team. Someone's got to go, that's clear. But never mind, I'm joined. I'm going to welcome Matt Vickers, MP for Stockton South, to Talking Pints. Matt, very Cheers. good to see you. It's funny, when you get an election like 2019, there's so many new faces, new MPs, in Westminster, it's, it actually takes quite a long time to sort of catch up with them all. We're different now, though. We used to all look the same, these MPs. Now I think there's different accents, there's different voices, there's different age brackets. So I think we're more memorable, hopefully. Yes, I mean, there are not quite as many of you that went to Eton and did PPE at Oxford. <laughs> but I think <laughs> that had become quite dominant in the Conservative Party. Now, your seat, of course, had been won by a Conservative. Yeah. I think back in the 80s... We'd, we'd had one more. We'd and you had one. More recent. Yep, yep. 2015, I think, was it a guy called James Wharton? James Wharton, yeah. So, so your win wasn't perhaps as surprising as Deanna Davidson and some of the others that really... But still, you won it. Um, you took it back off Labour. Uh, you'd been in local politics before. So has it been, you know, has it been Matt Vickers since he was, you know, just about able to see over this desk? Has becoming an MP been the big life... Go. It wasn't, no, I don't think it was. I've done lots of bits and bobs before I got here. Um, I got, I was quite switched on to politics though, at a young age, yep. I, you know, 
got involved, like to, to see what was going on in the world around me. Uh, I think the bit that really gets you going is if you become a local councillor, you see the little difference you can make to somebody's life, whether it be the pothole at the end of the street, the old lady who contacts you because the tree that's been overgrown, she's contacted the council for the last six months and nothing's <laughs> doing anything. And when you do it and you go back and the smile on their face or the little difference that you can make to somebody is huge. Uh, and that's what fires you want to do. It again. also cuts the other way, doesn't it? See, I think a lot of people watching this who've never been involved in local politics and never been councillors perhaps underestimate. It's actually blooming tough yep. being a councillor. Because, what, I mean, what could matter more to people than their home, their environment, where they live, um, the condition of the pavements, the roads, where their kids are going to I mean, school? I mean, all of this stuff. And my observation... I think local councillors get more grief than MPs. When I say grief, I mean, you know, they can't walk to the local shop without a conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. and a debate taking place. I mean, no, local politics really matters. Um, it really matters. And I think perhaps we sort of slightly underplay just how much good work thousands of people yeah. right across the country do. But you, uh, obviously, being in politics. Now, I know that one of the issues that has sort of raised its head this week is Keir Starmer. Now, what on earth he was doing crossing the main road when he could have used the tunnel under, under Port Cullis House? I don't know. Bad judgment, perhaps. And obviously he's surrounded by that mob, and they were a bit unpleasant. I don't think they meant him any physical harm, but it was not very nice. Obviously the pretty shocking murder of David Amos, and we're taking this programme to South End in yep. a couple of weeks' time, uh, and we'll obviously talk about that. And I... I went through a fair bit of this myself, but then, you know, I was anti-establishment, controversial, so perhaps it wasn't that surprising. It wasn't much fun. Yeah. But you were actually physically assaulted, weren't you? At, we did campus. during the election campaign. I think the reality of it is that actually we as politicians have some responsibility about the dialogue, about, you know, we, we talked about Angela Rayner and the whole scum comments, and it's, there's debate around issues, there's debate around people's record, and there's stuff that's just damn nasty. And actually I think social media has a large part to play in this. I think we've got a chart on the wall now as to how long we haven't had somebody threaten me via Twitter or via the inbox or you worry about in the it? office. I think if you, if you let it bother, you would have a problem because it's so frequent and you've got to think, you know what, these people are keyboard warriors, 99.9% of them. They're sat at home oh, in the back bedroom. Oh, they're all Victoria, and... all Victoria Cross winners after a glass <laughs> of red wine. I mean, I, mean, I mean, no, that is true. But, um, does it, but does it bother you? I mean, you know, you've been attacked, assaulted out on a doorstep. Does it bother you when you're in the constituency I on a think, Friday or whatever? I think, do you know what, to some extent, you've got, you, we cannot, we cannot ever allow those people to prevent us doing our job, getting out there, seeing people, getting on the doorstep, speaking to people, holding those surgeries. The minute we let that happen, we've got a major problem uh, and we're letting them win. Uh, and moreover, the reason that people are doing it is to put us off what we're trying to achieve. I think part of the reason you probably got as much stick as you did because mm. you were trying to achieve something that a few people didn't really want. In um, the end, the majority did. Yeah, oh, uh, but, oh uh, no, a few sorry. very influential people didn't want. I mean, that's certainly true. No, I mean, look, I think you're right. Uh, we mustn't let them win. But I do think maybe there are arguments in certain situations for MPs to have a couple of bodyguards with them or whatever because that doesn't separate you from the public. It, it could, in the right circumstance, actually make you feel more confident to go out and meet them. And I think that's perhaps a debate we're going to have as time goes on. I sort of joked earlier with you, teased you a little bit by saying, you know, you hadn't been to Eton or got a degree of PPE. And you probably don't quote Latin and Greek quotations or Milton or Shakespeare at dinner, um, as a lot of the posh Tory set do, and I'm sure you've seen it. But I need to ask you this, Matt, because there's, 
There's a big question right now. What is it to be a Conservative? What is this Conservative Party? Because I mean, let's be frank about it. You know, the punters in South Stockton didn't put you in there for a net zero policy that's going to make them put a... Depending on the size of their house, it's going to cost them, goodness knows, 10, 15 grand for a heat pump. Um, they're going to be forced into buying an electric car. Um, they certainly, because they'd be Brexiteers, of course, most of your voters, nearly all of your voters would be Brexiteers. Uh, they certainly didn't vote for weakness in Dover, illegal migration. I mean, there's so much happening. There was so much optimism, wasn't there? There was a fi- I felt that Brexit could usher in a new kind of politics. That was the big hope. Get our independence back, have a new kind of politics. And that maybe is the biggest problem. You know, party gate is a problem, I think. But the biggest problem is... Somehow it looks like the Tory party has gone back to being what it was. So what is it to be? Well, I mean, let's, let's, go with, let's go with the net zero stuff first. Yeah. I think, do you know what? I don't think we can say green is good or green is bad. I think the minute we get into this, you know, we let the headline go, oh, isn't it terrible, this net zero thing? Actually, I think that we, we see there are benefits to doing certain green things, you know, whether that be in terms of our energy security, you know. Or whether it be in the job creation, which which in we're T-side. not, which we're not doing. Yeah, in, in Teesside, uh, look, we look. are leading the green revolution. There's thousands of jobs. I don't think we should blindly go in at all costs to do green, to do zero come. But there is, we've got to look, look at each decision in, in its set. You can produce we've, green jobs in Teesside. But what you won't get back with this policy, uh, you won't get back aluminium smelting. You won't get back heavy engineering. You won't get back shipbuilding. You won't get back chemicals, refining. So, you know, we can argue this all around the if houses. We, if we demonise green energy, you know, if we demonise the green agenda completely and we say that actually... We're not about energy security and the opportunities that come with it. We're not about the job, job opportunities that come with it. We want to be at the front and the forefront of green technology. Uh, but we do need to do it in a balanced way. Like. Doing net zero at all costs is, is, is an absolute ridiculous idea. I want, us to be self, I want us to be self-sufficient in energy. I think it's absolutely nuts that we're importing 50% of our natural gas when we could produce it here. I, insane that 9% of our electricity some days comes on an interconnector across the English Channel from France. I want those things. But what is it? The nuclear is the future. Anyway, what is it to be a Tory? What is it to be a Conservative? To you, what is it to be a Conservative? I think, being a Conservative to me, the reason that I joined this party, I assessed uh, what was going on at a very young age, probably quite uninformed at the time, seeing what went on, making a decision myself. My parents weren't massively into, but probably still aren't to an extent, into party politics, even though we forced my mum onto the local council. <laughs> she loves it, though, <laughs> in the community. Um, but actually, I think it's about individual responsibility. It's about a, a party that's in government as he's on the side of people who do the right thing. If you work hard, you know, you look at the changes to welfare and the reform of welfare and universal credit, the fact that we've got a taper rate now. I remember when I used to manage shops, I had a girl who worked for me. She was fantastic. She was the most energetic, enthusiastic, capable, competent girl. She was a single mum. Uh, and in those days, under Blair, if you worked more than 16 hours, you were losing out. So by her doing that, she should have been managing the shop. Mm. She couldn't do any more than 16 hours. We cut off ambition. We cut off aspiration. We cut off opportunities. She should have been able to do those extra hours and take something extra home for her son. No, instead, and, and, no. I look. And I, I think many of these, uh, many of these uh, things that, that were thought through and worked on by Ian Duncan Smith, amongst mm. others, have been improvements. But you know, we've got a Tory party now that is big state. We've got a Tory party that has increasingly taken away individual choice and responsibility and said, we know what's best, we can do it for you. We're taxing and redistributing. We're not even taking 5% off, uh, you know, the VAT on, on, on our heating bills. And it just feels to me 
that the Tory party has, has become a social democrat, big government, high tax and spend party. And I wonder what it's for. I think, do you know what? It's a government of its time. It's a government that's dealing with completely unprecedented situation of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, it's done a damn good job in real terms. It's done a damn good job. I obviously went and rebelled on various measures. Where I well, hang on. Ridiculous hang on. I mean, but this, this is hilarious, isn't it? You're sitting here defending the Tory party. You've been the biggest blooming rebel that's been of the whole of the 2019 I, intake. Do you know what? We expected to get to the end of this pandemic and we expected mass unemployment. Actually, we're in a really good place. We're coming at the fastest growing economy in the G7. Employment better off than when we went in. More people in work. Uh, We've avoided that. And we're in a good way. Uh, and the vaccine rollout means the pubs are open, the shops are open. And I'd be very, normal. very careful about those employment figures that the Prime Minister spouts again and again and again. Because they take no account. That's PAYE numbers. Takes no account of the number of self-employed people that have packed up and got out of business. In and they're a big number. So, so in real terms, unemployment you know, is nowhere. What we expected no, no, no. when we came out, the economy is in good shape because of the measures we put in to support the, to support the economy. But, you but moreover, actually, if, if we hadn't had that vaccine rollout now, hmm. we would still be walking around here with daft masks on, doing all that malarkey, wouldn't we? This might be considered a party now. I don't. Well, I don't. on the table. Well, I'm not prime minister. I'm not making the rules. Partygate's not gone away, is it? It hasn't. It hasn't. And you know what? I, I, I shared the experience of having somebody who we lost, couldn't visit them in hospital, couldn't attend a funeral, and I, and I understand the anger of people on that front. Um, you know, it's there. I've made, I've made my sounds to government about that issue. Um, at the same time, I was out there at the weekend. For all the anger that some people have about it, mm. the other people are angry about the fact that we spend most time on a television show like this or reading through the newspaper Mm. Talking about this thing when we've got issues in Russia and Ukraine, we've got issues with the cost of living, we've got issues... You know, they want to get on with... But, there's an issue, the big but there is an issue of trust. And Boris has been... Ah, his relationship with the truth is a very interesting debate, isn't it? Um, he, he has said things again and again and again that have proved to be wholly wrong. And I think what he's lost, and he'll have lost it with some of your constituents, is trust. And when you've lost trust, winning it back is hard. I mean, do you think he's going to stay? I think, do you know what I want to do? I, I, I think trial by media is a really bad thing. I'm angry about some of the things that have come out. But at the same time, I think it's right that we see what the Sue Gray report says in full. We see what the police say about it. Because actually, was it last weekend the media were having a debate as to whether there was or there wasn't a cake? Trial by media is a really bad thing. We see some... One thing I've learnt from this job mm. is never believe all of the things you read on social media or in a newspaper. Crikey, have you seen the stuff that gets printed in the mirror? You know, oh, let's have... I've seen loads of it over the years. <laughs> let's see what the police say. Let's see what Sue Gray so says and make informed opinions about these things. And this could drag on for God knows how long. I, I, I agree. We want it moving and we want it moving now. We want to see that Sue Gray report in full and we want the police to investigate quickly. It's agony. It is agony. I mean, it's not good, is it? It's not good. And it hangs over government. It distracts everybody. And I do accept, everybody. I do accept your point that, you know, as this pandemic bore down upon us, I mean, this was a very difficult thing for government to deal with. And I get that. understand that. But despite all of that, you know, there's a feeling that promises haven't been kept. Well, uh, well the big promise is levelling up, isn't it? It's delivering Brexit and levelling up. Those are the big promises. And what is levelling up? Is levelling up, well, is levelling up giving money to the North, which is what some Conservatives seem to think it is, or is levelling up creating opportunities in the north? Which is it? Well, we give money to create opportunities for economic growth to create. So, in my part of the world, we have had we've had all sorts. 
view, I'll sh- come to Stockton South, I'll, I'll get you a car and I'll show you what levelling up is. We've got improvements to the local train station. We've got treasury jobs, jobs from the treasury that are being based in London, coming up to us. Not yep. only are they great, well-paid jobs, but actually it means we're moving decision-makers up there. We've got the first free port, the biggest, the UK's biggest free port. And you've got... Seaside, 18,000 jobs. And, and you've got Ben Houchen. Yep. Who has becoming the most prominent local politician in the Conservative movement in this country. And I have to tell you... I watched him the other day and I thought, yeah, I get that. I like that. I really understand what he's trying to do. He's firing on all cylinders. Because I think he understands the creation of opportunity. And yet, when I listen to Sunak and Gove, I feel it's almost like a Labour Party. Uh, you know, a Labour Party of 30, 40 years ago who think just chuck some money here and there and it's all going to happen. Matt, what are your ambitions? What are my ambitions? Yeah. Uh, to be adapted. So I was born and raised in Stockton South. When I go out knocking on them doors... I'm knocking on people I went to school with. I get down the street and someone who I worked with. And they still vote for you. They, well, some of them do. <laughs> Not all, I don't think, but some of them do. Uh, and I think, do you know what? That job, to have that huge privilege and <coughs> honour, is absolutely amazing. To be able to go back there yeah, and oh, have they a all say that. They all say that. Uh, I believe you, honestly. Of course they do. What are, you, what, are you, what are your ambitions in politics? My ambitions is to deliver for the people of Stockton South. Oh, We've been there two years and we're levelling up. I don't want all that, Tosh. Everyone says that. I th- you know what? I think if you, if you think that everybody who goes in there wants to climb and do this, and do that, then you're wrong because actually some of us just want to do a damn good job of it. We've been given an enormous privilege and pleasure and honour. Hopefully I'll be there long enough to do even more than I've already achieved, uh, but I'll be striving to do that. And if not... Then I know I've done it. So Whatever if, I could in my time. If climbing the greasy pole is not your ambition, what's the one big change you'd like to see in our country that you want to fight for? Uh, I go into schools every week, and they tell, we, we have a discussion about how we should change the law. They always suggest that we should, uh, we should change the law so that we have our desserts before we have our mains. Uh, what I want to deliver, it's not, it's not national politics necessarily. There's lots of things I do want to change. We've, we've, I've had my impact on assaults on retail workers and those delivering uh, a service to the public. But actually, I think it's about delivering at home. It's about bringing things back up to the north, uh, doing that levelling up thing that we set out to do. We've already achieved that big Brexit thing, thanks to, you know, lots of well, from lots of people. No, we, well, <laughs> well, the Brexit thing leaves us free to do all sorts yep. of things. I'd love to see levelling up. I still don't fully understand what it means. Right, right get yourself up to Stockton South. I'll show you it all. <laughs> I tell you what, I'll come and see Stockton South. Matt Vickers, thank you for joining me. <laughs> Cheers. Talking Pints. Very good. Good to see you. Thank you. Right, I'm keeping Matt here. Let's see how sharp he really is, shall we? Because we're going on to Talking Pines for a few quick questions from you, the audience. Johnny, Ar- Johnny asks me, Barrage the Farage, if Boris offered me a job tomorrow, would you take it? Would you want it? Boris ain't going to offer me a job tomorrow, but he might offer Matt Vickers a job tomorrow. If you were offered a job, what would you like? He said, what job do you want? Not if you would take it. No, um, I'm not going to get offered it. So, so What job would I want? Yeah. I'd, I want to be, I, I'm big about high streets, I'm big about retail, they're the centre of our community, so we wanting to do something with small business. Right, Minister for Small Business and Retail. David asks me, are you worried about World War III starting? I'm always worried about World War III starting. I just don't happen to think it's about to happen any moment soon. Um, look, is Putin going to invade the Ukraine? Everyone thinks he is. I'm not so sure he is. I think he's doing a great job of dividing the West just by having troops on that border. Did the Prime Minister's mini reshuffle reveal his best hand or just deal a load of jokers? I'm guessing that I'm guessing that what we are seeing now is Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's been silenced for the last two years as leader of the House of Commons, now becomes a more public figure. You know, now he's got that job as Brexit Opportunities Minister. We're going to see a lot more of Jacob. I hope he succeeds because we haven't done enough with Brexit, Matt, have we? 
Well, there's, there's, there's plenty of odds and ends that need tying up, isn't there? There's a bit more than that, I can <laughs> promise you. Last one, Clive asks, would a UN-monitored referendum in the Ukraine to discover what the Ukrainians really want be an option for avoiding conflict? It would probably actually divide the Ukraine even more between East and West. Another quick one. Laura asks, do you think that Boris Johnson will go after the May elections? Yes, I do. He's going to have a disaster on May the 5th, isn't he? No. No, there we are, right? We're out of time. Thank you very much indeed for joining us.